Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Just the Truth Podcast, sponsored by our friends at the Thomas More Society. I'm Jenna Ellis, and today we are doing just a grab bag of topics because there's so much to cover and a few really important items that you need to be aware of and analyze from a constitutionally conservative perspective, conserving our fundamental Uh, rights and liberties, and also conserving the values that our society was founded on. Uh, Understanding that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government. The sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect those rights. And we have to be uh, educated on what that means in context, why our constitution was designed in the way that it is, uh, how we can move forward within this just remarkable breakdown of our system of government um, and how the radical left is trying to, uh, to to really just corrupt completely our system rather than see and recognize that our constitution as the supreme law of the land, the rule of law, is chief and is paramount, not just their policy whims, uh, not their political issues, um, not their version of judicial reform. And we have to, before we make arguments, we always have to make sure that our arguments are sound, that they're rooted in truth, first and foremost, and that whenever we are shaping policy arguments, uh, we are doing so with the understanding that Our Constitution is rooted in conserving a rule of law because we are recognizing that government is only legitimate in a civil society when it operates according to its original design, which is to preserve and protect our rights and freedoms. So everything that we do has to be analyzed from a framework that we understand what the goal is, we understand the mechanism, we understand the protections of the Constitution, and we understand what it is that we are conserving. So when we're looking at what's going on in the Supreme Court this week, of course we have to talk about the Supreme Court deciding to hear the uh, gun case. So this is an NRA-backed case that is challenging New York's uh, concealed carry licensing regime. And uh, the NRA posted really a great article at nraila.org. And that's, of course, the uh, National Rifle Association Institute for Legislative Action. And they have a brief summary here. And so I'm just going to read this because it explains uh, the case really well. They said uh, today, of course, meaning uh, on Monday, April 26th, Today, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear an NRA-backed case challenging New York's restrictive concealed carry licensing regime. This sets the stage for the Supreme Court to affirm what most states already hold as true, that there is an individual right to self-defense outside of the home. This case challenges New York's requirement that applicants demonstrate, quote-unquote, proper cause to carry a firearm. New York regularly uses this requirement to deny applicants the right to carry a firearm outside of 
of their home. The NRA believes that law-abiding citizens should not be required to prove they are in peril to receive the government's permission to exercise this constitutionally protected right. I love how they phrase that. It's not a constitutional right. It is a constitutionally protected right. So uh, so they go on to say it's, it's hard to overstate how important this case is. The decision will affect the laws in many states that currently restrict carrying a firearm outside of the home. NRA, ILA is working hard to defend your constitutional rights and is prepared to argue this case in order to protect the rights of Americans everywhere. The case is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus Bruin. So let's analyze this from the context of the Second Amendment. Obviously, gun control has been a pet project of the left to try to restrict our fundamental rights and turn gun ownership into a privilege rather than a right. In this case, and the New York, uh, the New York State's requirement to prove to the state that you have proper cause to carry a firearm is doing just that. New York State now believes erroneously that your and my Second Amendment protected right to keep and bear arms is merely a privilege. And so we have to, as citizens, prove to the state why we should be able to have a concealed carry permit. This is completely antithetical to the protections in the Bill of Rights and to the understanding uh, and foundational design of our Constitution, which is that we the people do not give any of our rights over to the government for in exchange for their protections or in exchange for their existence. Uh, we understand that and recognize through our Constitution that legitimate government operates only when it preserves and protects the individual rights that we already have because God gave them to us. They are pre-political. You and I and every other human being that has ever walked to the earth has the same fundamental rights endowed by God our creator, period. At the moment of conception, human beings have all rights. And by the way, it's always fascinating to me that the one area that American law actually recognizes rights of the unborn child is in property rights. Because uh, our uh, our devisee and, and estate law uh, and wills and trusts and all of that recognize that um, if, for example, you have uh, a situation like my family where um, I grew up with one older brother um, until my much, much younger brother uh, was adopted. And so when my brother and I were growing up, we were the only children of my parents' marriage. And so um, my parents in their living wills, um, or if they didn't have a will, for example, um, then we would be, my brother and I jointly would be heirs apparent or um, would be you know, other, unless my parents chose to divide different property differently. Um, and, you know, obviously, according to, to other more finessed property laws of each state, but just go with me here on the, the generalities. Um, generally speaking, if uh, both of my parents had passed away without a will, the state would recognize that the heirs apparent were me and my older brother. But the state contemplates that you are only heirs apparent and it's not vested that I would get 50%, my brother gets 50%, because the law specifically contemplates that there may be future children born of the marriage. And adoption, by the way, is a beautiful thing, because in adoption, uh, then children who are legally adopted 
have all rights, rights, notice that word, and privileges as born children of the marriage. And um, this is a beautiful reflection in the law, by the way, of our divine lawmaker, of uh, God himself and of Christ who um, who says that we as uh, the Gentile nations, um, I'm not Jewish uh, by by race or heritage, and so I'm not part of um, the initial chosen people of God that we see in the Old Testament. Um, and everyone else, the the Greeks and uh, the Romans, and you know everyone else uh, that Paul talks about in the in the New Testament, who are the Gentiles. Well, after uh, the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Christ, um, when uh, when the Bible talks about being grafted in uh, to the inheritance and the fullness of God and being his children, he talks about adoption and how we as the Gentiles have full rights and privileges uh, like his chosen people. And so we have our equal co-inheritors, uh, just like the Jews, because now there's neither Jew nor Greek uh, nor Gentile. And um, and it's a beautiful picture our, uh, our legal adoption law that reflects this uh, design of being children of God and how we have uh, the fullness of inheritance. And so um, so if you go back and you, and you think about this, um, getting back to our analogy, so my younger brother who was adopted uh, later, the law actually contemplated that not only would there be a future born child of my parents' marriage, but a future adopted like a born child of the marriage who would have the equal rights and privileges as my brother and I. And so my parents um, are, of course, still living and um, so excited to have all of um, and blessed to have my my family members um, all still here. And uh, we all have, you know, a great uh, family relationship and I just love them. And um, and so my um, my parents now have three children who are born of their marriage. And so the law actually protected not just the rights of, of any future born child that hadn't even been conceived yet, but also future adopted children of my parents' marriage. So my little brother, even before he was conceived, and of course, well before he was uh, grafted into the Ellis family and was adopted, the law protected his property rights. Now, think about how much more should our law then protect the fundamental God-given right to life? I mean, that, that's just so incredibly fundamental. But if we think about this in the context of then our God-given unalienable rights as a whole, then we see how the law in the property law context anticipates future, uh, future children, future human beings who have all of their rights attached. And, uh, and, and that's even before they were conceived, uh, much less before uh, they were born. And so how much more should our law protect the rights of every human being, regardless of the stage of life from conception to natural death? And so when we think about our rights and how they're pre-political, we have to think about them in the context of what our government is obligated to protect. And so then when we look at cases like this Second Amendment case, where now basically New York State is telling individual citizens, um, you have to show why you can exercise that right. 
You have to prove to the government that you have uh, that you should be entitled to this right. Well, that means a privilege because a privilege, as we've talked about before, is different than a right. Um, a right is, while it's not absolute, it, it, it can't be infringed upon, bought or sold at whim or abridged by government without due process. A privilege, on the other hand, is something that the government gives only to specific people or groups of people um, on their, uh, according to, to whatever procedure is in place uh, by the government to be able to say, okay, you have proven that you are now entitled to this privilege, right? So when we think about this law in context, the New York State's requirement that applicants demonstrate proper cause for a concealed carry permit, that is turning a fundamental right that the Second Amendment requires our government to preserve and protect. It's turning it into a mere privilege, one that we have to demonstrate to the government why we should have. No, our right, our fundamental God-given right to keep and bear arms is not a mere privilege. It is a fundamental, God-given, unalienable right. And the only way that the government can stop us from keeping and bearing arms is through due process, all aspects of due process. And no, red flag laws are not due process because um, we've talked about that a lot before, but basically because um, that also requires that you prove your fitness uh, to the government based on whatever standard and test they prefer to then have your firearms back. So even though you could say, well, this is a slight infringement, it's temporary, it still requires a demonstration from the individual as to why they should have uh, and be able to keep and bear arms. Uh, that is fundamentally antithetical to our entire constitutional design. And imagine if this type of analysis that New York's requirement is, is trying to impose uh, on citizens. Imagine if that were, it were uh, required in any other context of any other fundamental right. Imagine if I had to prove to New York State why I have proper cause to be an NRA member, for example, um, my freedom of association. I have to prove to the level that the state requires why my freedom of association to be an NRA member um, has shown proper cause. That'd be ridiculous. Or why I have to prove to New York State why I have the freedom of speech to do this podcast talking about the Second Amendment, right? That would be a, a complete violation of my freedom of speech, my God-given, fundamentally protected right that I don't have to tell New York State or any other state or the Supreme Court or anyone else why I should be able to have the freedom of speech and be able to exercise it. Or imagine if I had to prove to New York State why I should be able to freely exercise my religion and why I choose to go to church on Sundays. I mean, we would all see the absurdity of those types of show cause and show proper cause uh, that I have to prove that I'm, what, a fit Christian or that I actually believe in the fundamental tenets of my faith if I uh, go to church on Sunday? Or should I have to prove that um, I'm actually Jewish before I can go to a synagogue or I'm actually Muslim before, um, you know, I go to, uh, to a mosque? I mean, these types of things are ridiculous tests that the government, of course, can't require for us to exercise our rights. So why in the world do they think that it's constitutionally permissible 
to require citizens to demonstrate proper cause to exercise their Second Amendment protected rights. They, they can't. And I hope that whoever is arguing this case is going to raise some of these other uh, collateral sorts of analogies, because uh, that should frame this to the Supreme Court as absurd as it is, uh, because so many of the leftists want to pretend that gun control and regulation over uh, the the right to keep and bear arms is somehow a different type of right than any other right that we freely exercise all the time. And, and it's not. Uh, the Constitution doesn't set it up that way. Uh, the, the revealed and recognized truth of humanity and of the, the reality to which we're presented uh, show otherwise in empirical truth that, of course, human beings have uh, the right to self-defense. And part of that in the 21st century is the right to keep and bear arms of the style and the development of technology uh, as arms are able to be acquired today. And so, no, there is no musket uh a sort of a provision of the Second Amendment that that relegates it as an antiquated topic uh, just to the firearms of the day uh, in in uh, 1787 and you know further on when the Second Amendment was uh, written and ratified. Uh, that's a ridiculous argument. We haven't limited free speech, freedom of association, any other rights. Uh, that are fundamental and constitutionally protected, we haven't only relegated transportation and free speech and all of those things and freedom of the press to the technology that was back in the Founders' Day. But somehow, you know, the leftists want to carve out uh, just some of these arguments that they prefer that bolster their particular viewpoint on this rather than a reasonable and constitutional explanation of why these rights are fundamental and they're not privileges. So this is a great case. I am hopeful that the majority of the Supreme Court will hold correctly and will tell New York State, uh, no, that is a violation of the Second Amendment. Um, and to require applicants to demonstrate proper cause to carry a firearm and exercise their rights that are protected by the Second Amendment, absolutely not. Now, I have to make the point like I always do when we're talking about the Bill of Rights, that the Bill of Protections, as I prefer to call it, um, is simply a redundancy safeguard. So even if the Second Amendment were repealed tomorrow, you and I would have the very same rights that are God-given, like every other human that has ever existed across world history and across human history, we would still have the same rights. And Congress would have, and the government would have no more ability or legitimate authority, legitimate power to restrict and infringe upon that right uh, as if, if the Second Amendment were repealed tomorrow. But because there are specific enumerated rights that the government most often infringes on, like the right to keep and bear arms, the founders in their wisdom saw fit to have a Bill of Rights and to say, here are specifically enumerated rights that we all agree are fundamental they must be protected. And Congress, just in case this weren't clear, and hey, New York State, just in case it wasn't clear, you can't violate, restrict, and infringe on these, you know, now through the 14th Amendment, all of that, how fundamental rights, uh, you know, going to the states for protection, protection through the incorporation clause, we can have that conversation. If you missed my conversation with Mike Donnelly about uh, 
the incorporation clause and and some of the problems of the 14th Amendment, definitely go back and listen to that podcast on uh, that issue. It's really fascinating. There's a lot more that can be said on that. But, But basically, government on any level, in case you weren't clear, this is a fundamental God-given right that you are obligated to preserve and protect. And that does not mean ever that citizens have to apply for the government's permission first and go through their hoops and go through their tests and go through their proofs before you and I can exercise our rights, period. So I hope that the NRA prevails on this. We're going to take a break here and we'll come right back with topic two. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Just the Truth Podcast. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we're talking about a variety of issues today, a potpourri of issues, if you will. Um, I always loved that category on Jeopardy, potpourri. You never knew what you were going to get. All right, so the next topic we're going to talk about is, of course, the Arizona audit. And a lot of you have asked me, um, okay, so what? So what happens uh, when this audit, uh, you know, reveals and, and shows even more evidence of ignoring the rules and, you know, all kinds of things. So we are past January 20th. So what? Why is this a big deal? And uh, some of you have also said, okay, so when is President Trump going to be reinstalled in the White House? Uh, Speaking of President Trump, he made a statement uh, just about an hour ago. A statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America, saying the radical left Democrat Party has gone absolutely insane in fighting the forensic audit of the 2020 presidential election scam right now taking place in the great state of Arizona. They sent a team of over 100 lawyers to try and stop it because they know what the result of the Arizona Senate-sponsored audit will be. And it won't be good for the Dems. The audit is independently run with no advantage to either side, but the Democrats don't want to hear anything about it because they know they lost Arizona and other scam election states in a landslide. They also know that the Arizona state legislature approved virtually none of their many election requests, which is totally unconstitutional. The people of Arizona are very angry, as are the people of our country. If we can't have free and fair elections, we don't have a country. The audit must continue. America deserves the truth. 100% President Trump, absolutely. We have to have free and fair elections. And so the first most obvious answer to this is that in the very, very short time frame for investigation, resolution uh, of the thoroughly corrupted election of 2020, um, we knew as a legal team that we were not going to uncover absolutely everything. Uh, these types of investigations take time. Uh, but what we did have was more than sufficient in that short time frame. And I'm frankly so proud of our legal team and all of the people who worked really hard on uh, on all of these states and looking into this to show uh, more than sufficient for the legislatures of these states 
to look at the evidence that was presented in hearings, uh, presented in litigation, uh, to look at this and say, yeah, this was irredeemably compromised. So we need to, through our plenary or absolute authority under the Constitution, we need to, as a state legislature, reclaim our delegates and then determine in special session how we are going to send delegates uh, to Congress in order to participate in the Electoral College. That was their responsibility. Uh, So they failed. And for those of you who are blaming this on Biden and the Democrats, well, yeah, they're the fraudsters, right? I mean, well, you know, Biden is senile. I don't know how much he even knows of whether he's even president or not, right? So these are his handlers. These are the people who are the um, election officials in each of these states, uh, from the secretaries of states all the way down to uh, to the election officials who were there on the ground in these stick six states and possibly more that violated the rules. They ignored it. So they cheated. Uh, they completely ignored the law in their states, and they're the fraudsters, right? So absolutely, they are they are the criminals here. But the accountability to make sure that our elections are not corrupted in the outcome and the end result. That responsibility constitutionally rests squarely on the shoulders of these state legislatures who are Republican controlled, other than Nevada. But when I'm talking about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, all five of those states, they are Republican majority controlled. They failed their constitutional obligation and they failed you and me and all of the people across America because we all participate in this system called the Electoral College. And when you have at least six states where their election officials, their executive branches cheat, then it is the responsibility and obligation of those state legislatures to hold them accountable. And when you have six states among the 50 that cheat and so they corrupt the outcome, that affects my vote in Colorado, that affects your vote in whatever state you're from. You don't have to be part of one of these six states to have been affected because now Joe Biden is in the White House rather than the actually duly elected President Trump. So if you wanna blame someone here, the blame rests solely and squarely on the state legislatures. Also, yes, the judicial branch, because the judicial branch could have required the legislature to provide the constitutionally apportioned remedy, which is to determine uh, how they send their electoral delegates. Uh, The Supreme Court refused to to do their constitutional obligation, which was to hear the Texas versus Pennsylvania lawsuit. Uh, They were derelict in their duty. Uh, They just gave it a pass. I think what uh, Justice Thomas said later in one of the election cases, why are we leaving election law under this uh, shroud of mystery? Why are we so afraid to address election integrity? Um, If you as, as a country, if we as a country cannot challenge our election law, then why do we even have a judicial branch? Every other law in our entire code, our legal code, can be challenged 
and we have rules on it. I mean, even if it's something like the tax code where, you know, they've said individuals don't have standing and there are rules around that, they've at least heard those cases and made the rules and made the rules according to, uh, you know, sometimes not according to the Constitution, and that's a whole other problem, judicial reform, all of that. But the fact that the Supreme Court wasn't even willing to hear the Texas versus Pennsylvania case and hear the evidence uh, that was overwhelming and say, okay, yes, Texas and all other states that weren't part of these six, yes, the outcome was affected. So your participation in the Electoral College was affected. So therefore, we are telling the legislatures of these six states, you have to deal with this. You have to resolve it. Now, the states could have, if they were in session, decided, you know what, we're going to go ahead and decide that we want to certify the Biden delegates. That could have happened. But the state legislatures, it was their obligation to look at the evidence, to come back into session, and then decide as the representatives of the people in their state say that, yeah, obviously how we delegated our authority to our executive branches, to our our secretaries of states, to the election officials, they totally ignored the rules. So they did not follow the law and select and certify the electoral delegates according to the manner in which we have prescribed as the state legislature, which is our constitutional duty. It is our obligation. It is our power and authority that is specifically textually granted to state legislatures. So we are going to now select uh, our delegates for the electoral college. That should have happened, right? So it was, again, a failure of the judicial branch, but primarily the state legislatures. It was also a failure of Congress. And Vice President Pence, you all know, I was not at all a champion of the so-called Pence rule, where a sitting vice president presiding over uh, the congressional session that counts the uh, delegates and the certifications to uh, to Congress he didn't have the authority to select which slate he wanted to impose. It is not the discretion of the presiding officer of Congress to decide the next president, period. Uh, that would open a can of worms that absolutely the Constitution does not grant to the sitting president of the Senate. But what Pence could have done and what I did champion and recommended to uh, Pence's office uh, at the time was that he could have posed the question back to the states and said, hey, there are still ongoing cases that haven't and, and claims and challenges that have not been fully adjudicated. So while this appears to be a certification, is this accurate? Was this certification done according to the rules of your state? And if the state had come back and the legislature had said, yep, then okay. He had his answer. No discretion. But that would have forced the states to provide a response. And again, if you've noticed the trend here, it all comes back to the constitutional design and the appointed authority, the state legislatures. So we can be mad at the Democrats for doing what they always do, which is cheating. But we have to be more mad at the state legislatures that were Republican controlled in these states for not just blinking, I, they they were eyes wide shut this entire election integrity process they refused to deal with it themselves they refused to fulfill and discharge their obligation as state legislators so where does this leave us now and why does this matter in terms of the audit 
Well, um, you will not like to hear me say this, but even though Joe Biden was not uh, constitutionally duly elected, he was constitutionally duly installed as president. Um, So meaning by that, uh, the process happened. And it happened according to the the constitutional process of the Electoral College. And so when Congress counted the certifications that appeared to be certifications and the state legislatures did not stop them, they didn't step in and say, wait a minute, uh, that wasn't certified according to our law. They let it happen. They failed their obligation. Then the Electoral College delegates met. They voted. That is how we get a president and vice president of the United States. And so because the window was so narrow between November 3rd and January 6th, and then obviously the oath of office on January 20th, according to the U.S. Constitution, at noon on January 20th, because the window was so short, the Democrats and the Republican-led legislators, those legislatures simply ran out the clock. So now we have a president that was not duly elected, but he was constitutionally installed according to our process. So when a president and vice president take the oath of office, the only way under our system to remove a sitting president from office is through the impeachment process. And we've definitely been through a couple of impeachments, uh, sham, crazy hoax impeachments, that the impeachment clause was never intended or designed uh, to do. But in this instance, the only way for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to be removed from office now because they have been constitutionally installed is through the impeachment process. And that's actually a good thing, you guys. Um, I know that that's frustrating to a lot of people to hear, uh, but that's actually a good thing because if you look back at how the Democrats tried to politicize and weaponize the impeachment process, how they tried their darndest to remove President Trump from office, our system prevented that in a really good way. They couldn't meet the threshold of the conviction and removal portion of the Senate trial. And that's a good thing. We have a really high threshold so that we don't have these attempted coups, so that we have a stable system of citizen-led government. That's a good thing. Now, when you get a corrupt usurper like the Biden administration in office, yeah, that's, that's working against us now, and I grant you that. But Overall, it's actually a really good thing that the only way we can do this is through impeachment. So what should happen now in terms of the audit? Well, yeah, I I hate to break it to you, but it's not like if there's, you know, even more overwhelming evidence and, you know, all of this stuff that the audit reveals um, in Arizona and hopefully other states will then audit their own states. I think every state, all 50 states should take a good hard look at their election process, uh, look at Uh, what machines they're using, look at uh, what their election code says, look at their delegation of authority, look at everything and tell the citizens of their state, we're looking into this. We want to make sure that free and fair elections still matter uh, in our state and that you as a voting citizen of the state can have confidence in the transparency and legitimacy of the election system. That's a very good thing. So I hope that a lot of states will do what Arizona is doing. And it's a nonpartisan effort. It's sad that it has become partisan and that the Democrats are trying to stop this. What are they afraid of? 
the truth. So every state should be doing this. But what happens then when you see even more, the, the even more extent of the corruption? Because you know what uh, Rudy Giuliani and I showed to uh, the state legislatures that was not just a show, that was not just a circus, it was not just you know reality TV. None of that. The purpose and the design was to tell the state legislatures, look, in just you know a little over under a month since the election, we have been able to show you the extent of, at least up until then, we had so much evidence that beyond the margin of difference between Trump and Biden, the election had been compromised and thoroughly corrupted. Um, and so all that this audit is going to show and all that uh, audits in the other five states um, would show is even more of an extent of the election being thoroughly compromised and meaning the election officials did not follow the law. And so what happens now? Well, a couple of things. First, uh, that should absolutely prompt the state legislatures to implement safeguards. And don't let anyone tell you this is about Republican voter suppression. That's ridiculous. That is a talking point that is absolutely untrue. This is about free and fair elections. This is about making sure that every legal vote counts and it counts accurately. We don't want illegal votes to count. And we don't want legal votes to be counted inaccurately. Hopefully we all agree on that. Because if you don't agree on that, you're probably a cheater. So each of these states needs to implement common sense election security measures. And a lot of these states, uh, through the pretext of the pandemic, had changed their election law. And even that, uh, you know, when we're talking about mail-in voting, signature matching, all of that kind of stuff, um, that was ridiculous. Uh, that has proven to be faulty. And even then, the election officials didn't do their job. They ignored the rules and they violated it. So uh, a very simple proposal would be that the state legislature, if it still wants to delegate its authority to administer the election to the executive branch and to the secretaries of states, they need to be the ones that ultimately certify the vote uh, and the delegates to the Electoral College. Because if they implemented that and said, hey, we first have to sign off on this, we first have to hear from you know whoever they wanna hear from uh, in an election, and they have to put their stamp of approval as a state legislature and the constitutionally appointed body, uh, that's something that should happen in every uh, every state, all 50 states. And if your state legislature isn't doing that, what are they afraid of? Would they, what I learned through this whole system is that the state legislatures wanted to duck this. They did not want to have the courage to face this head on. And when they realized that they were the ones that actually had the power to do something, they didn't want it. And that is absolute cowardice. Every state, especially Republican-controlled states, need to put in common sense legislation that says, hey, the buck stops with us because the Constitution says so. So we have to approve the, uh, the, the manner in which the delegates are selected. We have to approve the certification. Nothing goes to Congress without our approval, period. Uh, and then, you know, assuming that Republicans do gain control of 
the House in Congress again in 2022, uh, that's where impeachment may be a, an actual thing. And of course, you know, you would have to show a nexus um, of because, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, again, in all fairness, we need to be constitutional conservatives. I did not like it. I thought it was ridiculous and a sham and a hoax and all of that when uh, President Trump was impeached for things that uh, did not fall within the scope of impeachable offenses, uh, did not have a legitimate legal basis in law or fact uh, for him to be impeached. It was totally a political maneuver. We can't do that against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris simply because the election officials got away with it. We have to show a nexus um, between them and this whole entire problem. Because when it came right down to it, uh, even if a candidate is installed, if they didn't participate in the fraud themselves, then is that an impeachable offense? And my position is is no. I mean, and I'm open to being convinced otherwise. Um, if there's legal scholars out there who, who want to suggest otherwise. But um, I would not want, for example, President Trump to have been impeached for some corruption within the RNC or for something that he had absolutely no part in just, I mean, that's guilt by association, right? And that's something that as a citizen and also as uh, you know, someone who's an office holder, we prohibit guilt by association. So Biden and Kamala Harris are not immediately guilty of an impeachable offense simply because they were the nominees from the Democrat Party. Now, if evidence shows otherwise, absolutely. Or if there's some other impeachable offense, uh, you know, like the you know the ties uh, to to Ukraine or to China. Um, but again, we have to make sure that we are being consistent here. And if we have said and advocated that it's only that impeachment is only permissible under the Constitution for offenses during office, then that would apply to Joe Biden as well. So um, so impeachment and, and then removal would be a very high threshold. Could we get to the two thirds majority? That's never happened in American history that a president has been impeached and removed. So would we be okay with a political motivated impeachment? No, we shouldn't be. Um, would we be okay with a an impeachment that was grounded constitutionally in law and fact? Well, yeah, absolutely. I would say bring that charge, impeach them if there is a legal basis, a constitutional basis for it. Um, there is a, a, a basis in law and fact for impeachment and then let the Senate deal with it like the constitutional process. And if they don't get to the two thirds conviction, well, that's on them. And hopefully they don't play partisan politics like that. We know that they probably will. But um, but that's the design of our system. And so uh, so no, President Trump can't just be reinstalled. Um, it doesn't work like that. It shouldn't work like that. And even if we wish that that would happen in this instance, we have to be constitutional conservatives. And the best path forward is changing the law, holding these state legislators accountable for their cowardice, uh, requiring uh, in, the, in the 2022 election uh, that we have time before 2024 to get uh, better representatives in. I mean, this should be, if you're on the state level, especially in one of these swing states, the number one question you should be asking every candidate and every current office holder who's running for re-election, what's your position on election integrity? Why didn't you vote to come back into session? Why did you not fulfill your obligation? That needs to be the number one thing. Election integrity has to move forward. And the reason this audit is so important is because, yes, President Trump is absolutely right. Americans deserve transparency. We deserve to know the extent 
of the corruption and the irredeemably compromised election. Uh, for those out there saying, well, wait a minute, why are you so excited about the AZ audit when you know we thought you had enough evidence before? Well, sure. Yes, we had sufficient evidence for the legislature to do their job, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we don't need a thorough audit. And we said that if you actually go back and you listen to uh, all of the testimony, if you listen to the statements that both uh, Rudy and I provided to the state legislatures, we said this. We said, um, and you know, we said in a lot of media opportunities, um, we said the states need to go back and actually figure out the extent of what happened. That's going to take a lot more time than two months. Right. That's I mean, if you look at how deep the investigation goes, it, it was a ridiculously difficult thing to accomplish in two months. And I, again, am so proud of our legal team and um, I'm so proud of President Trump for um, providing us the opportunity to advocate on his behalf and for what we actually accomplished in those two months. And the blame, 100 percent is on those ridiculously coward, coward, cowardice state legislatures that were Republican-controlled. That's the only reason that President Trump isn't in the White House. So um, we will talk about this more when the results uh, come back in. And hopefully other states are going to be looking at their election law. And, you know, even if you don't live in one of those six states, go to your state legislators now and say, hey, uh, you know, what is our election law? Why have you delegated so much authority to uh, your executive branch? How, how am I confident that, that I'm not going to be one of the states uh, in future elections? This is something that we have to take very seriously and has to be our number one priority. Don't let the left, you know, call you an insurrectionist or a, you know, purveyor of the big lie or blah, blah, blah. I don't care about any of those names. If all they can do is name call, I don't care. That's all they can do because they know the truth that they want to ignore, that election integrity matters. It's a nonpartisan issue. It's a constitutionally protected issue that our system is run on the basis of free and fair elections and that we, the people, get to select and prefer our leaders through our system that our founders designed. Don't let the Democrats tear it down. Don't let them cheat. But even more importantly, don't let Republicans get away with being cowards. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Just the Truth. And the last issue that we need to talk about just briefly is the new CDC guidelines that says only fully vaccinated people in the U.S. can go outdoors without masks, except in crowded settings, the CDC director says, and, quote, hopes the new mask guidelines will encourage people to get fully vaccinated, unquote. So I tweeted this. And by the way, if you're not following me on social media, I'm on all platforms at Jenna Ellis ESQ. 
And I tweeted, well, what about the 85 million people, and it's actually more than that, 85 million people worldwide that have recovered from COVID-19 and have natural antibodies? The vaccine prompts manufacturing of antibodies without the virus, but there is no difference between vaccine-induced versus naturally occurring antibodies. Um, I post this because I haven't really seen anyone address that particular aspect of this. Um, We can have the conversation about vaccines. Uh, We do actually quite frequently. I've had a number of people on uh, my show on Just the Truth TV on America's Voice News, which, by the way, is every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Definitely uh, tune into that. And I've had um, a few people talking about the vaccine, um, you know, the pros and cons. This is something, again, where I have not taken a position openly on the vaccine. I don't give any of my personal health information. I'm not going to tell you whether or not I've had the vaccine because you know why? It is a personal decision. And the government in no way should coerce you or me to take it. Um, And the government can encourage it, fine, but encouragement through methods of coercion are ridiculous. So this whole idea that, oh man, if I really wanna go maskless, then I guess I should go get the vaccine. No, that's ridiculous. Um, It also should not be done through private corporate enterprise uh, in any way by saying that we can't participate as members in a uh, society and transact business or uh, go and be consumers of various uh, entertainment media or just uh, any sort of uh, consumer-driven product consumption if we don't have the vaccine. That's also ridiculous. It's an individual choice. There's a lot of reasons why people may want to not get the vaccine or why they may choose to get the vaccine. Um, It is not inherently a moral issue uh, whether or not to take the vaccine. It is not a moral uh, better choice to say, yes, you know, we're taking the vaccine and we're virtue signaling. And it's also not a moral uh, opinion to say or a moral basis to say uh, no one should get the vaccine. Um, There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that this is a moral issue either way. It is a specific uh, choice that you and I can make depending on our own health considerations, um, all factors involved. Um, But the one thing that I would really frankly like to know is why is the government pushing vaccines um, and coercing, trying to coerce people into taking vaccines who have natural antibodies? Because the point of the vaccine, this mRNA technology, is to have our bodies synthetically manufacture the antibodies without actually encountering the virus and having to recover from it. So for people who have had COVID-19, bodies make natural antibodies, and so uh, they should be immune to uh, just as if they were vaccinated. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of different conjecture on how long natural antibodies last. There's now conjecture on how long the mRNA vaccine antibodies last. But in my opinion, from a, you know, and again, I'm not a doctor, I'm, I'm a lay person, but just logically looking at the inference of what the CDC is saying about the vaccine, if I have naturally occurring antibodies, I'm just as good as inoculated with the vaccine. I just came about my antibodies in a different method through having actually gotten the virus, right? Those people who've gotten the virus and have natural antibodies should be able to assert that argument and should be able to, uh, to in, in any uh, setting, if they choose to, if there is such a thing as, you know, you have to show a vaccine passport to 
go to Europe, for example. Um, why isn't it, um, we, and again, we, I had a whole podcast on the constitutionality of vaccine passports, totally against that. But um, assuming for sake of argument that there are instances where you'd have to show proof of a vaccine, why can't you show proof of being antibody positive? I don't get that. I legitimately don't understand that. And the only reason, if we're logically looking at this, and there is no actual difference, the only logical inference is because this is another method of control. This is another method of the government saying, no, only our version of antibodies is permissible and we want you to take the vaccine anyway. And so therefore we are just gonna completely ignore all the, uh, the naturally occurring antibodies. I think that's ridiculous. Um, it's just yet another method of the government trying to control. Again, I'm not saying anything pro or con vaccine. I'm simply saying if the government really wanted to possibly convince some of the people who are wary about the vaccine, a great way to do it would be saying, you know, hey, if you have naturally occurring antibodies, great, you're as good as vaccinated, you don't need the vaccine. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to kind of dispel this whole myth of, you know, all of these conspiracy theorists who are, um, you know, running around talking about how this is, you know, going to change your DNA and stuff like that's That's not true. Uh, but for the people who may be concerned for legitimate reasons um, about taking the vaccine because, you know, there aren't any uh, long-term effects studies, uh, that's a really good reason. Um, this is, yes, it's experimental in the scientific definition. If we want to talk about, you know, the truth of science and following the science, it is experimental. And also there haven't been uh, any testing on any potential adverse consequences to fertility. Um, that's a huge thing, you know, among uh, people, you know, my age group and younger. Um, so, you know, there are very valid reasons why people are skeptical of vaccine, why they don't take the vaccine. Um, there are a lot of reasons why people do take the vaccine. Um, that's a totally fine choice. But I wish that the government would be responsible enough. And yeah, I realize government and responsibility are two kind of oxymoronic terms. Um, but I wish that they would just be honest and would be responsible to say, hey, if you are one of the 85 million people plus worldwide who has recovered from COVID and has natural antibodies, you're as good as inoculated. Go you. Great. Um, get, you know, get a positive antibody test. And, you know, for whatever purpose that serves you, um, you know, if people go out and they say, wow, yeah, I have antibodies. Great. Um, that means that you're immune. Um, this is where we tend to vastly, overly politicize everything rather than actually following the science. Um, if we followed the science and we could actually trust that the CDC and you know all of these other scientists and health doctors and stuff weren't overly politicizing it, that's what would give the American people confidence to actually trust in the reliability of our healthcare providers. And uh, that's a huge thing. So. I'm really looking forward to uh, more people asking this question. I would love to uh, get a straight answer from somebody like a Dr. Fauci. I hope that uh, in future congressional hearings, uh, congressmen and women uh, would be willing to answer, to ask those questions. And I think people like Jim Jordan and Rand Paul and others who are, uh, you know, who are questioning these these ridiculous, tyrannical um, efforts by the government. Uh, they're doing a great job with it. So um, so we need to always be uh, filtering our media and also these regulations with healthy skepticism, not 
conspiracy theory driven that government is always evil, you know, anything like that, but through healthy skepticism, think for ourselves, have every opportunity to look for um, the truth of the matter. And we should always, always, in every instance, be looking to get to the truth of the matter and the facts wherever that leads. And if that means that you end up changing your mind on some issues because you've actually reached the facts and the truth, that's a good way to be open-minded. It's not a good thing to be open-minded so you don't have convictions, you don't have principles, you don't have values. No, but if the facts show otherwise and the truth is something different than what you first believed, then sure, change your position. And that's that's a noble and honorable thing to have discernment in that way. So we need to be skeptical and healthy consumers of the news. We should always be looking for facts. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're spending your time with me uh, listening to this podcast because just the truth is always so important. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at thomasmoresociety.org. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.